Our New Testament reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 16. It's a long passage, but still let us give ear to God's inerrant word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Father and our God, as we look at your word, grant to us that we may understand it. Grant that we might hear you speaking to each mind and each heart, not just to the congregation as a whole, as invaluable as that is, but to each individual, for this is your word to your people. We ask this of you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
The book of Hebrews is one long extended sermon. It's a sermon to Christians of Jewish extraction or Hebrew extraction. You want to talk about their ethnic roots. Jewish in the sense of also that they have been partakers of Judaism. It's important to remember that there's a difference between Yahwism and Judaism. Judaism is the religion of the Pharisees. Yahwism is the keeping of the covenant, the old covenant that God had made with his people. And the whole thrust of this long extended sermon is don't fall away. Don't go from Christ back to Judaism. The section we've read here is, you might say, a sermon within a sermon. The text of it is given to us in verses 7 and following, which is the second half of Psalm 95. Sorry, the water's further down than I thought it was. The first part of Psalm 95 calls God's people to worship Him. And the second half, we don't know who wrote the particular psalm, but the second half of the psalm, speaking to God's people hundreds of years later, is warning them that they must not do what the first generation leaving Egypt did. And the writer of Hebrews is using this text to write to his hearers, his readers, and it's included in the canon of Scripture because God is sending it to us as well, that we need to hear the gospel, but we also need to believe and to obey. In fact, that's really basically uh, the heart of the sermon found in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. Uh, please notice, uh, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. And then look what he says in the next verse. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief is disobedience. Disobedience is lack of faith. I want you to, I'm going to turn for a moment. You can if you wish. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Where Moses is recounting to the generation that's about to enter the land. About what happened with their fathers. And I said to them, do not be terrified or be afraid of them. Because they were terrified of the news of what the Canaanites were like. There were more Canaanites than them. They were bigger people than them. They had fortified cities. Um, And humanly speaking, Israel didn't have a chance. They really didn't have a chance. In fact, when they later decided to go in and God says, I'm not with you, they were whipped, just as they were afraid they were going to be whipped. But Moses says, do not be terrified nor afraid of them. Yahweh, your God, who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, we saw how Yahweh, your God, carried you as a man carries his son. In all the way that you went until you came to this place, yes, for all that, you did not believe Yahweh, your God, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you, to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night, in the cloud by day. They didn't believe God, and therefore, they disobeyed God. This particular sermon is addressed to us, as it was to those Jewish Christians in the first century, that we need to not repeat what that generation did, We need, as the author of Psalm 95 suggested to his readers, 
we dare not repeat what that generation did. We're to take God at his word, to believe him, and then to obey him. And if we don't obey, that evidence is that we don't believe him. And if we don't believe him, then we're not going to obey him. It's just a very simple statement and a very simple emphasis. If you'll notice then in verse 12 of chapter 3, we have some of the same information given to us earlier. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But he continues that sentence. Yeah, we're supposed to be concerned about the living God. We should fear him. Our God, we're told later in this book, is a living fire. That's a quotation for the Old Testament applied to this, this dispensation, Christians. Don't have that evil heart of unbelief because that's what you would do when you depart. But brothers and sisters, this next part is extremely important because it's the other half of the problem. It's not just... I need to be careful of my unbelief, I need to be careful of my disobedience, but rather, what do we do together as the people of God? Exhort one another daily. I love how he keeps quoting this psalm throughout this first section. While it's called today, he's picking up that word from the psalm. While it's today, which means this day and tomorrow is that day, today and following and so forth, Daily, while it is called today, exhort one another, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. I can't go it alone. You can't go it alone. We need one another. This is why in chapter 10, he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as the habit of some is. And then he continues in that verse with basically the same message that we read here in chapter 3, verse 13. We need to be exhorting each other. We need to be encouraging one another. We need to rebuke one another at times. Um, I had the privilege of leading my best friend to Christ, giving him the gospel. In fact, later on, he was my best man, and then I was his best man. But on one particular Sabbath morning, uh, with all the other teenagers in the balcony, Lord willing, I will never see a church building built with a balcony. Uh, I was misbehaving. I was giving far more attention to a certain young lady, whose name I don't recall, instead of the message from the Word of God. And afterwards, Steve uh, rebuked me. I won't quote him. Uh, he rebuked me. I, I remember smiling at him as, I, as he did this. He, it's not funny, Miller. And no, it wasn't funny, but here's a guy I gave the gospel to correcting me as I needed to be. And I just found that kind of, isn't that kind of cool? Um, In a sense, my son in the faith is correcting me. Oh, I needed it. And while Paul is a minister of the word and I'm a minister of the word, he needs correction, I need correction, he needs encouragement, I need encouragement. He might need rebuke. I certainly need rebuke at times. And that's part of the function of the assembly of ourselves together. You need to encourage one another, admonish one another, rebuke one another, while it's today. And for the whole purpose, lest daily you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. You and I, out in the world, outside the church, as we go through the week, whatever your job is or whatever the people are that you hang around, you're going to be encountering a number of people who will encourage you to do anything except what you're supposed to do. 
They're going to encourage, they're going to give you arguments for why Christianity is nonsense, why there is no God, uh, why you should go ahead and, and live your life any old way you want to, forget about the Ten Commandments or any other exhortations from God's Word. And that is going to be powerful over time. And that's why we need to unite together to encourage one another so that we don't fall away. Look then at verse 16. Who was it having heard rebelled? Well, what did they hear? Uh, we're told in verse 2 of chapter 4, Indeed, the gospel, the good news, was preached to them, to us, as well as to them. Excuse me. What good news were they given? They were given the good news that they would enter into God's rest. That Canaan would be a, a home for them. And that Canaan, as we can see elsewhere in the New Testament, Canaan is kind of an earthly picture of the eternal rest that we all are looking forward to. In the second catechism question we looked at, what are the benefits that come to us from Christ, from our justification or adoption, was the other one, sanctification? What are they that come to us after death? The first one's mentioned is what? Anyone remember? Look in your bulletin. There's coming a day, and it won't be soon enough, when I will no longer be able to sin. I'm looking forward to that day. Uh, I may not look forward to how I get to be there, uh, but I'm looking forward to when I will no longer be able to do that. When I will be entering into the rest, seeing my Savior, and yet that other promise that, yes, my body will still be in the grave, but it's also united to Christ, so therefore there will be a day when it will be raised, my soul and my body will be reunited and will be before the Lord forever. Who heard the gospel and rebelled? Everyone over the age of 20 years of everyone over the age of 20, with two exceptions, and the author doesn't mention those two exceptions here, every one of them rebelled. Who was it with whom he was angry? Verse 17. Those who had sinned and whose corpses fell in the wilderness. For roughly 40 years, people were dropping like flies until everyone over the age of 20 was dead with, again, those two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. They did not enter the rest because they did not obey. And they did not obey because they did not believe. Then chapter 4 opens up, continuing the thought. By the way, in this section there are 11 times we find the word rest in English. Once, and I can't remember now which verse it was, it's the word Sabbath. In every other case, it's another Greek word that is used for the Septuagint um, that we do find also in this psalm. The rest is told, told in verse 11, chapter 311, my rest. It is not just, as we find here uh, in chapter 4, the rest that God has on the seventh day where he rests from creation, but also the rest where there's a place of peace and harmony and love and unity. That's the eternal rest that God has promised to us. 
And that's where this promise is in verse 4. A promise remains of entering his rest. Lest, uh, uh, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Let's be afraid. Because there are plenty of people who have professed faith in Christ. Plenty of people who have heard the gospel and responded. In the soil, sprang up with joy. And when tribulation comes, they wither, they pass. Because they really didn't believe him. Think about that generation. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the Red Sea open up. They saw Moses strike a rock and they had water flowing from it. They found, what is it? That's what manna means. And they ate that food for all those years as God provided for them. Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. And they didn't trust God. That's incredible. Are we one of those who would fall away? We should fear in that sense. And yet, indeed, we should hold on to this good word. The word which they heard, verse 2 of chapter 4, the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? It wasn't mixed with faith. They heard the gospel. And they didn't believe. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. By the way, we just mentioned that for a moment. Do you realize it doesn't usually be, we're not usually told this in the Reformed faith, but you are saved by works. And you are saved by good works. Not your works, or my works, but the works of Jesus Christ. Israel was saved by God's works. He's the one who gave the ten plagues. He's the one who divided the Red Sea. He's the one who led them in and gave them victories over all of their enemies who outnumbered them, who were technologically more superior to them. He worked, and they entered into his rest. Not their works, not my works, nor your works, but there is a kind of work that demonstrates that we have received the benefits of God's works, that we have believed him, and therefore we obey him. Wouldn't it be nice if we always obeyed him? That's why I'm looking forward to the day when I will no longer be able to sin, because I'm still a sinner, I still disobey, and when I've disobeyed, I've failed to believe in him. In verse 8, we have... A precious, precious statement. In both Hebrew and Greek, Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Our English Bibles, some English Bibles at least, in verse 8 will have Joshua. The old King James has Jesus. Um, And I think it really should be rendered that way. And here's why. Because the early church recognized the connection between the type and the anti-type. Joshua was... The first Jesus, in a sense, the first Yeshua. And we're told here that if he had given them rest. But did you notice what we read in our Old Testament text back in Joshua chapter 23? Verse 23, verse 1. It came to pass a long time after Yahweh had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. 
In fact, in the previous chapter, chapter 21 and verse 44, Yahweh gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And yet, there's not a rest. That passage we read goes on about how if they disobey, they disobey God's word, then that rest they're going to lose. And as Deuteronomy makes abundantly clear, if you persist in that disobedience, that lack of faith, that lack of faithfulness as well, you're going to be kicked out of the land. And even so, the rest that was given through Joshua, I'm not saying that Hebrews and Joshua are contradicting each other, they're understood in different senses. Joshua did not give them a permanent rest. In a sense, Jesus hasn't given us one yet either. Are we in heaven? Well, in a sense, because of our union to him right now, while we're in this room, we're also before the throne of God in heaven, but we're not there in the way that we will eventually be. That rest is also still held out for us. That's why we need to be exhorting one another, and that's why we need to fear. But if Joshua had given them this kind of rest, this permanent rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. Because the God who spoke through Joshua in those passages we looked at is also the God who spoke to the author of Psalm 95 and who's the same God speaking through the author of Hebrews. There is that ultimate eternal rest that we will have with God. And so then in verse 11, the final exhortation is given. It's the same exhortation we've already seen twice. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Why? Because the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And we usually quote this passage, we take it out of the context. The context is telling us that this word is so powerful, it is the means by which we can diligently press on for the rest that God has for us. And there is no creature, no creation, verse 13, hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Which of my sins does God not know about? Perhaps another way to put it is, which of my sins do I not know about? But God does. There was an offering in ancient Israel for the unknown sins. Right? Well, Christ is that offering as well as all the others. All of my sins have been paid for by Christ. I'm... Who knows how many years I'll get to live. Sadly, that means how many sins will I get to commit? Or will I commit? But they've also been paid for. As all the ones in my past, all the ones in my future are paid for. So I should just kind of lay back and let grace abound in my sins, right? What does Paul say about that in his epistle to the Romans? If the old King James is, God forbid, my beloved New American Standard gets it literally right with no punch at all, may it never be. That just has no impact. Certainly not, some other translations put it. No way should I therefore just give in to sin so that God can have ever more grace to give to me. This passage, like Paul's passage in Romans, no. I need to be afraid of that. 
I need to be trusting in Him, seeking Him, believing Him, obeying Him, and I need you to help me. And you need one another to help you. Let's bow our heads and hearts before our God. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for your word and the calling to holiness, the calling to belief and practicing that belief every day of our lives. Today, today's the only day I have for sure and for certain. And today is the day I need to obey. That today is the day I need to trust. We ask of you, Lord, that your Spirit would work in us and that our brothers and sisters and your Word would work upon us in such a way that, yes, we will enter into that rest, that eternal Sabbath rest of unity with you, of fellowship with you for all eternity, with all of the saints from the past and all the saints maybe who haven't been born yet as your people are in your presence forever give us that rest we pray in Christ's name Amen